This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Emma Shortus and Brian Tui. Emma is a historian and a research fellow based at the RMIT EU Centre of Excellence, and Brian Tui is a veteran journalist, having been both a columnist and an editor of major newspapers in his long career as a journalist. Brian has been writing extensively on national security since 1973. Both Emma and Brian joined me together to delve into the multifaceted problems with the AUKUS Alliance. We talk about Australia's $368 billion nuclear submarines announcement, as well as former Prime Minister Paul Keating's significant intervention in the debate at the National Press Club. The submarines deal involves the US intending to sell Australia three Virginia-class submarines, they may be second-hand or new, with the potential to sell us up to two more. This will happen in the 2030s. In the 2040s, we're expected to receive a new submarine which is designed by the UK and incorporates key design features of the US nuclear submarines. There will be up to eight of these nuclear submarines over a much longer time span. We talk about the bigger picture of the deal and some of the key questions and issues that were raised by Paul Keating. It is my true pleasure to welcome onto the show two people I very much admire. It is a real honour to have both of them on together to be talking about a very major piece of policy and also defence spending, among other things. We are going to not only look at the detail of this, but the bigger picture, which is often missing, and Paul Keating has pointed that out very clearly last week. I am talking about the AUKUS agreement, the alliance that's been etched between Australia, the US and the UK. Part of that alliance involves buying submarines, very, very expensive nuclear submarines using weapons-grade uranium, highly enriched uranium. And as President Biden pointed out, they won't be holding nuclear weapons, but they will be powered by nuclear technology. We'll also talk about the bigger picture, which is the US-Australia alliance and the ever-encroaching nature of it into Australia's sovereignty, as well as Paul Keating, former Prime Minister, and his intervention at the National Press Club last week, which I think was sorely needed and some of the issues that he raised in his, not only his statement, but also his conversation with Laura Tingle and journalists of the press gallery. Bringing that all together, we'll look at Australia's place in Asia, of course, Australia's relationship with China and China's actual status within the world order, as well as some of the concerns from Indonesia and Malaysia, countries that are part of ASEAN. So I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Emma Shortus, a historian and research fellow based at the RMIT's EU Centre of Excellence, and also veteran journalist and author Brian Tui. Brian was a columnist for the Fin Review. I certainly read lots of his columns in print when it used to be a thing that I would read in print. He has done some excellent writing also for Pearls and Irritations, which is a website by John Menadou. And Brian has also written some excellent books. His latest and most recent book from 2019 is called Secret, The Making of Australia's Security State, which is out through Melbourne University Publishing. And Emma's book, which we spoke about when it came out in 2021, is Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. So as you can tell, two highly qualified guests. Welcome back to the show, Emma Shortis. 
Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. And welcome for the first time, Brian Tui. Morning. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Obviously, I think some people, including you, Emma, had said, I'm a bit fatigued by submarines. And is it any wonder? Because I feel like we have been talking about them for a number of years, not just under the guise of AUKUS, but of course, before that, with Australia ditching the deal between themselves and France to build conventionally powered submarines and altering the designs of their typical nuclear submarines using lower enriched uranium. Then before that, we've had plenty of other wobbles and issues with Australia's submarine policy and obviously the fixation with building them here in South mm. Australia. So it's not a new thing to be talking about submarines. But I did want to, I guess, delve into this issue and find a way in. And I thought maybe, Emma, you could set the scene for us as to the history of Australia and its fatal alliance with the US. And we don't need to go from the dawn of time till now, but as it pertains to submarines and the ever closer linking and enmeshment with the United States between the Australian military and defence and the United States military and defence. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Amy. I think I don't think I was quite as polite as saying that I was fatigued with uh, no. I think I was, I was a little bit ruder than that. Um, look, and that I, that was really, I think, born of frustration with the way that the kind of narrative and the conversation has played out here in Australia around submarines, because so much of that conversation, as I, I think you're alluding to, gets really bogged down in technical detail, you know, in, in kind of really detailed and inaccessible conversations about technical capacity and, you know, the way these submarines are run and how they'll be crewed. And of course, that's that's really important and a necessary conversation to have. But I don't think it should be the main conversation that we're having. You know, I think that, and Paul Keating raised this as well, of course, um, and that was a critical intervention. The conversation we need to be having is, a, is about the underlying strategic logic and motivations of, you know, why Australian governments have kind of been obsessed with submarines for so long and have just failed time and time again to get it right, you know, have, have handled it so catastrophically from the French, you know, all the way through to AUKUS. So, so that, I suppose, is where my frustration is. And it's been really interesting to see that there has been, I think, a fair bit of pushback, of course, around the acquisition of these submarines and, and the way that this deal has been announced in the last week or so. And, and lots of really important talk about um, sovereignty, of course, and, and Australia's independence. But I think as a historian and, and you know, for people who, who I suppose look at the longer history of the alliance, which is 75 years old, the, the official security alliance between Australia and the United States, none of this is a surprise. And really kind of hand-wringing about sovereignty and Australian independence, as my colleague Beck Stratting put it in The Guardian recently, really, you know, that ship has sailed this AUKUS agreement, this new arrangement around submarines isn't the kind of final nail in the coffin of Australian sovereignty. That, that that was already gone. You know, we're already so deeply enmeshed in American military structures, military command structures, and, and even the kind of technical capacity of, of the Australian military and the Australian Navy that questions of sovereignty are much more complicated than kind of crying about independence, I think, allows for. Because, again, you know, we're so deeply, deeply integrated that we'll need support. You know, if Australia ever needed, heaven forbid, to defend ourselves, we would need American support as the situation currently stands because we are so deeply enmeshed. And, again, this is, as you're kind of suggesting, Amy, this is part of a long history and the, the 
I suppose, the logic of the alliance, which is about continually deepening that enmeshment with the United States. So, so in that sense, AUKUS is really just kind of a logical, another logical step on a path that we've been on really for 75 years. Mm. And Brian, I know that you've been writing about submarines for a very long time because I went back into the archives to see and it seems like a lot of themes continue to come up and picking up on Emma's big picture discussion there, I wanted to draw in a bit of a source quote and wonder if you had taken note of this and whether you could expand on this idea from Richard Miles, who is the current defence minister. He gave an address last year in July at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. He said something which is quite interesting He said in the context of the growing numbers of Australian and American forces and the big investments in defence capital infrastructure to maintain that connection with America, he says, quote, we will move beyond interoperability to interchangeability and we will ensure we have all the enablers in place to operate seamlessly together at speed. Now, interoperability is quite different to interchangeability, and I wondered if you had a perspective on that shift. I certainly do. It is a huge change, and now we say that they can use our stuff, we can use theirs, and we have no say once you let them use our stuff what they do with it, basically. And um, it is a very, very big difference and Miles seems to have done that off his own bat. It was within two days of the election. I don't know that went through cabinet or through the parliamentary Labor Party or whatever. He is very, very strongly in favour of expanding the American alliance. By the way, they never, ever mention the ANZUS Treaty anymore. That's just ruled out entirely. They just talk about the global rules-based order. And the thing that they don't like about the ANZUS Treaty is that Article 1 says you're not supposed to use force in international relations without, you know, being attacked. And so it's it's aggressive use of force is ruled out, but not in... Well, we don't know what's in the AUKUS Treaty. No-one knows. You'd think that they by now they would have tabled the text in Parliament, Mm. but they haven't. Yeah, well, Paul Keating brought up this issue that obviously it is a bipartisan policy and he criticised the Labor Party, especially those on the Labor left like Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong, for really giving it 24 hours thought or less when they adopted this policy in full. And he basically referenced Anthony Albanese's comments about him bragging with a sense of pride that he had essentially signed off on this policy of AUKUS and the alliance in its entirety within such a short time frame. And his very interesting observation around that was, and I'm just going to find the quote here, Keating said, well, how would you take a policy which is going to cost this much money, have consequences for our relations, A, with China and with the region, B, in terms of our industrial space, how could you do this in 24 hours? You could only do it if you have no perceptive ability to understand the weight of the decisions you've been asked to make. Other people would call it incompetence. I'd maybe call it trying, and he was trying to, I guess, give a slight out for the leader of Australia in his criticism. But it was, I guess, a moment where I think some people might have sat back and reflected and thought, well, were 
processes really followed? And was the entire Labor Party caucus behind this decision, given it was made in such a very quick way and also under the cover of huge amounts of secrecy? And I wondered, Brian, first of all, whether you had a view about that, given your close coverage of federal politics and the inner workings of all of the parties. You know, what are your thoughts on the way that Labor approached this major policy shift? My main thought is uh, I'm always surprised how little Albanese knows about defence and security issues. And some of the things he says are just completely wrong. For example, when he says, oh, look, we're getting these submarines from America and Britain and so forth, but that's not diminishing our sovereignty. Look, we buy planes from America and that doesn't do so. Well, in fact, it does because you're not allowed to repair them. The Australian technicians or whatever have no say in it at all. Whatever parts they are, they've got to go back to America and they are repaired or upgraded or whatever in secret. And that's been around for a long, long while. He, Albanese, simply doesn't understand that we are not at all independent of the United States and this will make us less so because there's no... These these submarines, which I don't think are by anything like the most modern, but nonetheless they're incredibly technically complex and you can't seriously think we're going to build them here and we can't really repair them here and we certainly can't do anything about the reactor Um, nuclear reactor, that is, except uh, we're the bunny that, according to Miles, we're going to try and secure, when the time's up for it, all of the highly enriched weapons-grade uranium here in Australia. He he says, on defence land. It's not on it. It has to be very, very deeply underground, Mm. and, and it's not clear how they're going to do it safely. I actually asked the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, how would they go about safely disposing of it? And to my astonishment, they said, we're not going to answer that question. Their job is to answer things like that. That is concerning. Well, the other concern there is that Miles has not mentioned anything about, it seems like they're going to do it on land, which is of great interest to Indigenous population. And they were treated so appallingly during the British nuclear tests You don't want a repeat of that, yet he hasn't suggested that they're going to put any particular interest into that. No. And there's all this, uh, I guess, drip feeding of information. We just have to wait and wait until there's a new announcement. There is no publicly transparent debate or discussion about any aspects of this policy. It's just sprung on us. I think the other concerning thing is that it's, it's driven by mainstream journalists who know almost nothing about submarines and mm. uh, and all the wider sort of issues. And one of the things that struck me during that, the attack, basically, from the mainstream media on Keating was that one of the things is, how could he possibly be talking about this because he hadn't, hadn't had an intelligence briefing? <laughs> well, that's true, and it's a major inv- advantage. If you yeah. look at back, you know, back a bit, <laughs> we're just having the anniversary of the invasion of, of Iraq, and the journals don't seem to understand this, but that was based entirely on the accuracy, the supposed accuracy, of intelligence about weapons of mass destruction. And one of the people who... There were three main leaders to go in there, and John Howard, our Prime Minister, was one of them, and he said that the Australian government knows, that's the word he uses, that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. The lessons from that are, 
they make up intelligence now. It's actually part of pushing a policy. And it's the same sort of thing showed up recently when the formal announcement, so to speak, of the new nuclear submarines over in America occurred. The White House put out a background paper saying that for more than 60 years there had never been even a minor incident with a nuclear submarine. Well, two of them sunk with all the loss of during that period, with the loss of all life. But no Australian journalist has bothered to follow that up, let alone say, how on earth could that be said? Surely the White House must know. Of course they must know. Surely the main intelligence people in Australia should know. Alvin Easy doesn't. But the journalists didn't think it was newsworthy. Yeah, it's it shows that journalism, the traditional form of journalism, has certainly changed in quality and rigour since when you first started out, Brian. Emma, <laughs> I'll let you jump in here. Yeah, of course. Look, I, I think um, I, like Brian, have been reflecting on Paul Keating's intervention and how critical it was. You know, I've been kind of wondering to myself what we'd be talking about today if Paul Keating hadn't made that appearance at the National Press Club because, you know, as much as... He's certainly not perfect and, and we can take issue with some of his interventions. If it hadn't happened, you know, we, I think, would still be going down this kind of narrative track of, of talking about the technical details of submarines and, as Brian was saying, you know, taking the words or, or having journalists and the media establishment take the words of the security agencies kind of at face value. And so Keating's intervention there has been critical. But I think what it also highlighted, and and Brian was getting at this too, was that as much as so much of the coverage is kind of framing this as a done deal, you know, that that the Labor Party decided over 24 hours that they were going to do this and now it's doubled down on and there's bipartisan consensus and there's always been support for the alliance. So, like, this is just happening. This is just going to happen and there's nothing really anyone can do about it. There's not going to be enough opposition. I think what Keating highlighted is that that's not necessarily true. You know, it might feel like this is a done deal. It might feel like as we're watching the kind of, you know, security bros like crow about this deal, it might feel like it's lost and it's finished. But I don't necessarily think that's true. You know, Brian was talking about and you were talking about, Amy, the, the decision within the Labor Party and the fact that this hasn't been, you know, put to a vote in the Labor Party. It hasn't kind of gone through caucus. It hasn't gone through the membership. That could come back to bite the Labor Party because you can see even now kind of rumblings amongst the membership, amongst Labor Party groups um, about the deal and the nature of this deal. You can see emerging, I think, opposition, as Brian was, was alluding to, around nuclear waste in particular. And I think um, there's a possibility as well that opposition will emerge around where these subs are, are visiting, you know, where, they're, where they are in port. Is it going to be in, you know, somewhere near Brisbane, which has a very successful and, and very established grassroots Greens movement? And the Greens have voiced their clear opposition um, to this agreement and all that it entails. The union movement as well, you know, I think has been held up as as this agreement. You know, that's the reason so often about these like 20,000 jobs but the union movement is is not united especially around Australia going nuclear you know there's a long and storied history of, of opposition to nuclear power nuclear development in Australia and I think that there is there's real potential that 
both mainstream politics and the mainstream media have underestimated the potential of that grassroots opposition to this agreement in particular. You know, I think they'd be dismissive of that because there is certainly a long history of support for the alliance, a bipartisan support for the alliance. But I think, you know, again, people are underestimating the room that there is to move within that. You know, that support is not unquestioning. Millions of people didn't come out and protest the invasion of Iraq 20 years ago because they unquestionably support Australia's alliance with the United States. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying, Amy, that that I still I have hope. But I do worry, you know, again, to go back to, to my earlier point, I worry that, you know, if we didn't have Keating, if Keating hadn't made that intervention, would we be having this conversation anywhere near the mainstream? Of course, it's going on outside the mainstream and has been for, for 75 plus years. But without Keating, would we be talking about it now, I, I wonder? And that's a bit of a scary thought. No. And also, sadly, at least we're having a more nuanced conversation on this show, but it's <laughs> it's not necessarily the case across the media. We've seen, for example, the Sydney Morning Herald be appalled by Paul Keating's criticism of their Red Alert series and he wants an apology from Keating and Media Watch on the ABC. There's a lot of pearl clutching going on in the press gallery and beyond about what Paul Keating said and the way that they were quote-unquote treated uh, when they (laughs) asked questions of him. But I think I was reading on Pearls and Irritations a really great column and someone had raised this point, and I'm sorry I can't remember who it was, but they had said one of the journalists complained, I think it was an SBS journalist, that, oh, you know, he attacked us but we were just holding him to account and up to scrutiny And the uh, columnist said, well, shouldn't the press gallery have been holding government policy (laughs) up to scrutiny, not a retired former prime minister who was trying to have a conversation about policy? I wanted to get your assessment, Brian, given your strong history and background in journalism and, and, of course, writing for major publications as well, more of your observations on the way that the mainstream press has played a role in not only talking about Paul Keating, but also, you know, this AUKUS alliance and the quote-unquote threat of China? I think one of the really bad things is how they keep pushing that China is a threat, that it's aggressive, with never giving serious examples of how it's been aggressive compared to us and the United States, of course, massive aggression in terms of war. China has never initiated a major aggressive war since the Chinese Communist Party took power. And what's happened now is it's just taken for granted that they are aggressive and they are a threat to Australia. In the case of the main one is supposed to be Taiwan, where the journalists all write, every paper writes the same formula of words that uh, Taiwan is an independent country that China wants to take over. It is not an independent country. We, our government, has said, no, it is part of China. Even the United States has said it's part of China. So that is factually wrong. But the other thing is they keep saying it's building up its military, uh, and it is. But that is in response to being surrounded by the United States with military bases and, and military forces that are patrolling right along very close to the Chinese coast or the Chinese border, and we help with that. And that's surely what their motives are. They are not anything like getting ready to invade or attack 
the United States. It's 15,000 kilometres away and they can't get there, basically. They need some bases close and they have to it and they don't. And they're not trying to get any there. The United States has got over 700 bases, military bases around the world. China at the moment has got one. Yeah. I think the other point to make about this, even if China were to become more aggressive in relation to Australia or, or, or our area, the last thing you should be doing is putting nuclear submarines, which is the plan, up alongside the Chinese coast firing in cruise missiles. The submarines should be back helping with the defence of Australia. And for that, without being too technical, those big, clumsy nuclear submarines are not best for that because it's very shallow waters in the approaches towards Australia. And conventional ones are much better and hugely cheaper. For example, you could get 10 really good German ones for $15 billion. And they've got a really, really good maintenance record. The American ones, which we're initially getting, they have a maintenance record that if we've gone ahead with getting a whole eight, only two would be operationally available at any one time. So I don't think getting two submarines operational for a price of $385 billion or whatever it's supposed to be is just ludicrous. It is ludicrous, yeah. It's uh, $368 billion. And, I mean, Paul Keating made that point as well at the press club. He was saying the Collins-class submarines that he was involved in ordering, you know, it would be far cheaper to get 40 to 50 of those for the same price. Mm. And, of course, as you point out, only a certain proportion of those will ever be in active service at any one time. So having up to eight nuclear submarines with only about two in service at any time, it does sound absolutely ridiculous. Some very key points I wanted to bring in here that Paul Keating brought up, and it brings things back to both of your points, Keating cited the US Department of Defence and their report saying that, quote, the People's Republic of China aims to restrict the US from having a presence in China's periphery. Exactly what you were pointing out there, Brian, about the fact that they're just trying to, as Keating had said, keep their front door clean which is probably the most small expectation you would have of a great and rising power. And one other point I wanted to talk about in relation to that was also um, something that Keating was saying, and he was essentially saying that Australia, in concert with the US, is really trying to take down or, or reduce China's second strike capability. Now, this is getting a little bit technical, but I did want to bring it up and raise it because it is relevant to this other idea of containing China in some kind of future war, which is quite ridiculous. But I wanted to ask you, Brian, before I go back to you, Emma, what does Keating mean when he says that Australia would be involved and, and would be trying to reduce China's second strike capability? Well, their second strike capability or, or their ability to retaliate to, uh, against the first strike from the United States, nuclear strikes we're talking about here. Yeah. Because what the US is trying to do, and our submarines were supposed to help with this, I should imagine, the nuclear ones, uh, is to sink the Chinese submarines which carry those intercontinental ballistic missiles, and they will be one of the prime things they do to retaliate. But China has got a really firm policy of no first use of nuclear weapons, and they've always had that. And the United States doesn't, of course. That's what what's he's talking about. It's very dangerous to actually 
It sounds weird, but it's dangerous to actually knock those particular submarines out because then it makes it easier for the first strike to occur from the United States. Emma, I want to bring you in into this conversation in the point of Joe Biden and the actual announcement, or as Paul Keating called it, the Kabuki show <laughs> in San Diego, which was very evocative. And I mean, I did watch part of it and there was, you know, three big flags, Joe Biden in the middle, he puts his aviator sunglasses on, there's, you know, hail to the chief song. It's all very American. And Paul Keating pointed out that You've got these three leaders out here, but the only bloke paying is Anthony Albanese. Deeper into Joe Biden's speech, when he starts to talk about the thinking behind the AUKUS alliance, he talks about the US's position within Asia, or as some people call it, the Indo-Pacific. And he says that the United States is a Pacific power because we're on the Pacific Ocean. We are a Pacific power. The United States has safeguarded stability in the Indo-Pacific for decades to the enormous benefits of nations throughout the region, from ASEAN to Pacific Islanders to the People's Republic of China. (laughs) In fact, our leadership in the Pacific has been a benefit to the entire world. I don't know if everyone would agree with that, Emma, but I wanted to get your take on his statement, especially that particular part of it, and his framing of the United States' role within the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. You know, is the US a significant Pacific power as much as he talks them up to be? Look, I, I think they are, certainly. I think that the United States is... is the United States power is is central globally. And and that's what Biden, I think, was getting at. You know, the United States has played a role in the Indo-Pacific in Asia for decades. And some of that certainly has been a stabilising role. You know, I don't think we should kind of fall into binary questions of necessarily of, of good or bad. But for me, I think what that speech, Amy, really, really highlighted once again was this really strange dual role that that Biden has to play and, and that particularly Democratic presidents in the United States have struggled with. And that's, you know, at once being a domestic president, you know, a president for the American people, the kind of president, you know, like Biden, who's passing the Inflation Reduction Act, who's who's passing huge climate legislation, who's who is genuinely, I think, trying to make American lives better, trying to do things like shore up democracy. So there's that role that he's playing. But he's also playing this role as leader of an empire. Right. And that's what his conversation, his his speech about, you know, the role of the United States in the Indo-Pacific was highlighting. And for me, that's the really important question and one that, you know, I think we are collectively really failing to examine here in Australia. And that's about American ideologies and American motivations, so much of which come from this just complete inability, even on behalf of Democratic presidents, to envision any challenge to American global primacy, not just primacy in Asia, but American global primacy. And that's what's driving so much of American policy and attitudes towards China. It's that China threatens American primacy. You know, there is this inability within multiple administrations, within the security establishment of the United States to even kind of consider the possibilities of a multipolar world, of of, of a world where power is shared and not owned completely by the United States. And again, you know, that points again to a failure in Australia to to examine the potential consequences of this. You know, the underlying assumption in so much of what Brian was talking about in under AUKUS is that the Americans will make good decisions, Mm. you know, and and I 
I just really don't know what evidence we're basing that assumption on, you know, that in the event of a conflict or a potential conflict that the, any US administration and the Biden administration included would make good decisions that would protect Australia or that would help prevent conflict. And I just don't see the, the historical evidence for that. And, and there seems to be this kind of attitude of like almost shrugging, you know, when when strategic analyses suggest that the United States couldn't win a potential war with China or that it would be a long protracted war that would go nuclear, for example, that security establishment folk tend to almost kind of shrug their shoulders and really fail to examine what we might do to prevent us even getting into that potential situation. And so for me, that's that's the kind of really scary thing this inability or unwillingness to examine American ideologies and, and the processes and motivations behind American decision makings. And then on top of that as well, the assumptions about, you know, what the strategic environment is going to look like, not just for the United States, but for, for our region when we're talking about, you know, 30-year timeframes, when we're talking about not getting submarines until the 2050s or whatever, you know, what is the strategic environment going to look like then? And I, I would really encourage listeners to, to read Jeff Sparrow's piece in The Guardian around climate change and, and you know, what our global climate might look like when we're getting even just the first of these Virginia-class submarines and how that really challenges, I think, the the strategic logic of, of not just AUKUS, but our, our relationship with the United States more broadly. Mm. You point out there, Emma, part of the American tension within the statement that Joe Biden had, but also the broader policy they have, which is that they are known to jump into wars to, you know, start conflicts on very flimsy evidence, as Brian just mentioned about the Iraq war and the anniversary of 20 years yesterday. And there's that interesting point that Joe Biden and Anthony Albanese was making at that launch, the AUKUS Alliance submarines announcement, which was really, this is all about peace. It's about mm. sovereignty. It's about, you know, use every watchword you want to use, <laughs> you know, trying to suggest that, no, no, this isn't about containing China and it's got nothing to do with war. But then on the other hand, we do have all of this kind of warmongering going on mm. within government departments, which is very contrary to what the public line is. But also I remember, Emma, that even on this show, we've talked about Joe Biden domestically talking up war with China mm. in regard to Taiwan. You know, this idea that he kind of boosts his credibility domestically to actually talk about this as a, a potential thing and just how inflammatory that actually is to the situation. I wanted to just bring in the purpose of AUKUS and the submarines because even Richard Miles has said, oh, no, 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 this is a peace-loving thing. <laughs> this is all about protecting our sea lanes, our shipping lanes, especially through the South China Sea. And I wondered, Brian and Emma, but we'll go to Brian first, do you, do you have any view about Richard Miles and the way that he's now publicly framing AUKUS and going with this whole idea of protecting Australia's shipping lanes? Well, China is Australia's major trading partner. They're not going to sink their own ships, bring it. <laughs> and I, I just, I think that's just something you snatched out of the air. A couple of Australian submarines are not going to be able to protect our trade all around the world. Just another thing about yeah. this whole thing, I think, is that the wars America has gone to recently are against basically peasants using a couple of clapped-out rifles and homemade bombs. This would be a war against a very high-tech country, mm -hmm. and we don't know that a future 
president. I know, I suspect they'll be quite hawkish, but they may not mm-hmm. be. They may say, well, hang on a second, there's a lot of things still to be done in America at the moment. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to join this one because too many of our people would be killed. And um, I don't think anyone's taking any account of that. Yet over a 30 or 40 year time frame, it must be possible that at some stage, American president will say, no, we're not going to get into this. It happened and Jimmy Carter was very much didn't start any wars. Kennedy turned Australia down cold when it wanted uh, to get backing for when we were still part of a British <laughs> British colonial th- a, 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 a expedition or, or when we were going up to Borneo to attack Indonesians. And, and it's just on the British thing. I can't believe that we're getting... We don't even know what this, whether it's a treaty or whatever it is, but we're going into three countries, including Britain, our former colonial power. Britain is stuffed, and it's got nothing to do with the Pacific. It shouldn't be here. Mm. And what what on earth is this happening for? We we need to pay attention to what Indonesia, Malaysia says about these things, what the Pacific Islands say, and the rest of Asia. And that's where we should be focusing our attention not you know, kowtowing to Britain, for God's sake. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I'm currently joined by Dr. Emma Shortis and Brian Tui, and they are both saying some very, very real truths about <laughs> AUKUS and the submarine announcement, $368 billion over 30 years to get up to eight nuclear submarines, some from the US, potentially secondhand, some later on co-designed by the UK and with some American technology thrown in, built in South Australia. It does sound like a hodgepodge because it is, (laughs) but there are also bigger picture questions about this as we've been talking about relating back to sovereignty in the US-Australia alliance, etc. But as Brian was saying just before There is a huge concern from ASEAN nations and two have been particularly vocal about their concerns, that being our closest big neighbour, Indonesia, a very significant country in the eyes of Paul Keating, who we've been including in this conversation through his memorable quotes at the press club last week, and also Malaysia, another significant member of ASEAN. And of course, we have many Pacific Island neighbours that we've been seeking to win back in the last few months to year under Penny Wong's leadership. Brian, could you take us through some of the concerns of Indonesia that they have been voicing? And if you'd like to bring in any other ASEAN or Pacific Island nations, also feel free. What is the voice and the thinking of Indonesia that, as Paul Keating said, we should be taking into account when making such a big decision on a a huge policy shift like AUKUS? Well, Indonesia has long been non-aligned, and it also makes the point that these submarines are for fighting and they do not want to be involved in fighting or support it. They have not even made their mind up whether they will let the submarines go through the various straits of Indonesia. Or if they do, they say they'll almost certainly have to be on the surface. And we don't, we don't <laughs> want the submarines to be on the surface and, and, and discovered. And I think we should pay a lot more attention to Indonesia and what they're thinking, not treating them like dirt, as we have been doing. And uh, Malaysia is concerned particularly about the use of nuclear submarines in this region. They are a strong member of a South Pacific nuclear-free zone, which uh, you're not supposed to... uh, Mm -hmm. You're allowed to because Corp pushed it through. 
if you're allowed to have nuclear-powered submarines. I shouldn't say they're nuclear-powered, by the way. They don't power the thing at all. A steam engine does that. All, all the nuclear submarine does is heat the water for the steam. Anyway, mm. that's not really a big technical thing, but I wish the class people wouldn't keep calling it nuclear-powered or propelled because they're not. Anyway, leave that aside. And the Pacific Islands, of course, have got a, a legacy of terrible hydrogen bomb testing by the United mm. States and also by Britain in the area. In, in one case... They removed all the people from an island. This is the very first case. The entire island was evaporated. and um, But that wasn't as bad as the next one where they let off a hydrogen bomb, which was 1,000 times more powerful than the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. And uh, that caused enormous ongoing damage. And uh, that, and that's still very much remembered in many of the Pacific Islands. The British also let off uh, hydrogen bombs. Absolutely. It's it's still an ongoing legacy, a very concerning one, and there haven't been enough efforts to repair not only relations but the environment mm. that was affected by mm. these terrible tests. I want to close out the conversation having a broader chat about what's next and also bringing in any points that you feel might have been missed in this conversation because we've gone across a wide range of topics and I know we might have missed something that you also have been dying to say so feel free to bring it into your answer. When I was thinking about what Keating said about Anthony Albanese using this word sovereignty just dropping it in multiple times an hour in the hope that that would somehow materialise Australian sovereignty. It does sound like magical thinking. It does sound like more of symbolism than meaningful action. And as Brian, you had said, he doesn't quite understand what it means. When I think about sovereignty in Australia and some of the critiques of Keating that were particularly cutting he was saying some things that undermine sovereignty, like, for example, the Defence Department here in Australia essentially kind of taking over the Foreign Affairs Department. He was criticising the fact that that has taken over diplomacy and Miles is taking over Penny Wong's job of being the diplomat amongst great powers. He's also criticised a whole lot of other elements like ASPE, for example, and them being a pro-US cell and the fact that Morrison said a couple of weekends ago that the only people consulted over the AUKUS alliance were ASPE and ONA, the Office of National Assessments. So the role of quote-unquote spooks in potentially undermining our sovereignty. It made me think of a quote from your book, Brian, right at the very beginning, and I wanted to just use this as a springboard as well as my little description before, and it was from a former Minister for Defence, and it felt like it could almost have been written yesterday because it reminded me of Mike Burgess and his recent comments about questioning the loyalty of people. This is from Harold Thorby, Minister for Defence in Australia, 1938. He said, we, the government, have vital information which we cannot disclose. It is upon this knowledge that we make decisions. You, who are merely private citizens, have no access to this information. Any criticism you make of our policy, any controversy about it in which you may indulge, will therefore be uninformed and valueless. If, in spite of your ignorance, you persist in questioning our policy, we can only conclude that you are disloyal. It did kind of feel like it, it was a bit like today, uh, in the sense that well, Mike I, Burgess I was questioning the loyalty of academics and business members. Well, well, well and then 
the journalists, I think, take part in that. You know, if you, how could you possibly talk about any of these things without an intelligence briefing? Well, that's basically what it's been said there. I just find that astonishing. One but it also shuts down about, public debate, doesn't it, Brian? Of Sorry. course, of course it does, mm. yeah. The other thing that struck me was what Albanese said at, in the unveiling of the, of the nuclear submarines. He said, we, uh, as a country, we have never been involved in attacking or diminishing anyone's sovereignty. Well, what about Iraq and all the other wars we've been in? And also, we would always absolutely value the individual worth of every individual being. Well, how about in Iraq, where before the war even started, the US-led sanctions caused the death of 500,000 children? And, of course, once the war started, caused a lot more deaths. Absolutely. So I guess when you're summarising your critique of AUKUS and, and sovereignty, it would be around the role of the media, for one, but also, of course, the role of politicians in being able to perceive the gravity of this particular policy. Well, first up, how can we sensibly, as the public talk about this, whatever it's supposed to be, act or whatever it is, how can we talk about it when we don't have a, a, a transcript? I mean, with the original treaty, the ANZUS Treaty, it was, of course, published, you know, the second it was uh, announced. And um, mm. I can't believe that no one is asking for it and uh, for, for the transcript. We know, who knows what's in there? Yeah. Emma, I'd love for you to give us your interpretation and, and thoughts around the questions of sovereignty, especially given your recent book as well. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Look, I think Brian just raises some some absolutely critical points, as Paul Keating did around sovereignty. You know, to ask like, what what do we even mean when we talk about sovereignty in the context of the alliance, in particular, in the context of international relations? And and Brian's getting at that really important link, or or I guess a failure to make that really important link between sovereignty and democracy. And again, that points to a really important and unaddressed tension, I think, in Australian foreign policy, in our alliance, in in American power as well. And it's that kind of inability to, to reconcile domestic democracy with international democracy. You know, we hear so often talk about when we're talking, when we hear talk about AUKUS or the alliance or, or a rules-based order or whatever, about the shared value of democracy, about the primacy of democracy. You know, this is democracies lined up against autocracy. But what Brian was, you know, showing so clearly, I think, is that there is a deep hypocrisy at the centre of that. And we can see that time and time again, even in Australia, you know, when we look at an effort for war powers reform, you know, with a push to say that the Australian parliament, the elected Australian parliament should have some say in whether or not Australia goes to war. Look at the kind of barely muted outrage that comes from, you know, organisations like ASPE that you mentioned, mm. Amy, the Defence Forces, at even the mere suggestion that there should be some kind of democratic accountability when it comes to foreign and security policy. And so that for me is kind of, I suppose, the bigger question around sovereignty. You know, like you, Amy, I get so tired of kind of hearing about that because we're not addressing these underlying deep assumptions and, and hypocrisy around the alliance more broadly. So, you know, why aren't we, instead of talking about sovereignty, why aren't we talking about things like collective security? Why aren't we talking about our security in Asia, like Paul Keating says, and not from Asia? And why aren't we considering things like, and Brian again alluded to this before, the implications of something like an Indigenous voice to parliament for the alliance or for the disposal of nuclear waste? You know, I think there's such a 
a pressing need for us to address these really foundational questions around the strategic environment, around what we mean when we talk about sovereignty in the international context and then the domestic context, and how we might begin to really radically rethink the way that Australia behaves in the world. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to hear from both of you. I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing your perspectives on this issue. It's good to hear from other voices, not just the loudest with the biggest platforms. So I really do appreciate both of your time today. And I wanted to point out that, Emma, you've been writing about US domestic policy for the conversation recently. So Mm -hmm. for people to look up your articles and also, Brian, you've been writing for Pearls and Irritations, your latest column is out today called Nuclear Safety Agency Silent on Disposal of Orcus Radioactive Waste, which you've been referencing in our conversation. And if people wanted to actually understand how a nuclear submarine is actually powered, aka the boiling of water, uh, they can check out your other column, Scorpion Thresher, Albanese Trashes the Moral Core of His Party, which was published March 15 this year, which does actually go into the detail of that. So I appreciate both of your time today. It's been phenomenal to chat with you. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. I've just been speaking with both Dr Emma Shortus and Brian Tui. Emma is a historian based at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT and Brian Tui is a veteran journalist, author and columnist. He was with the Australian Financial Review. He's also written for the Nikkei Asia Review, the West Australian, the Sunday Age. He was the editor of the National Times, a Canberra and Washington correspondent for the Finn Review, and he's the author of many books, including Secret, The Making of Australia's Security State from 2019, which is through Melbourne Uni Publishing, and Emma's book, Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States from 2021, out through Hardy Grant. I'm going to be playing a track which is very relevant to our conversation just there. It's from Midnight Oil and it's from someone who actually stands by Paul Keating at the moment and his comments on AUKUS. This track is called US Forces. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.